Jacob probably thinks that I'm angry at him for making him read that passage this morning. Thank you for reading it well, and let's pray to God for help as we come to it this morning, because it is a, it is a serious one. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we give you praise for your word, and we recognize that all of it is your word, and that all of it is profitable for us. And we come to a passage like this this morning, mindful of our need of your help, God, to understand it, to come to terms with it, to accept it and to continue to be transformed by it. So, Father, whatever profit you would have for our lives in this chapter, would you open our eyes to it this morning and give us the grace to not only be hearers, but more and more become doers of your word. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Two statements elsewhere in God's Word came to my mind immediately when I started to study Hosea chapter 13 this week. One of them was Proverbs 16 verse 18, which you're familiar with too, I think. It says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit comes before a fall. And the other one, everybody is familiar, just a few verses further down in that same chapter Proverbs 16, verse 25, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way unto death. And Proverbs 14, verse 12 says that exact same thing also. Those statements are, of course, declarations of, revelations of divine wisdom in God's word, as he would tell us and proclaim to us how things work in this present world where sin and unrighteousness exist everywhere all around us and where the effects of that sin are corruption, decay, as Paul talks about in Romans chapter 8, and death, the wages of sin, as Paul says in Romans 6 verse For the whole creation has been subjected to futility, Romans 8.20, and is in bondage, is in slavery to corruption, verse 21 of Romans 8, and, and is groaning, remember, because of it, verse 22 there of Romans 8, and the wages of sin for human beings is death, Romans 6.23 says, and that means both physical death, is a reality of the curse of sin in this world and also the looming reality of eternal death, everlasting death, in the separation of unrepentant sinful people from the presence of God's blessings in glory, but on the other hand, the presence of his judgment instead for all of eternity. That's what sin does. That's how it works in this world. That's what it brings. Corruption and death. Pride, which is at the heart of all sin, leads to destruction. In their sin, people who reject God follow after a way of life based on worldly thoughts and fleshly attitudes and appetites. A way that seems right to them, that feels good to them, but in its end it leads invariably to death. And the realization of God's 
righteous judgments upon all unrighteousness. All of that is at the heart of what Hosea chapter 13 is all about. Specifically, of course, with reference to the northern kingdom of Israel in the 8th century B.C., as we've seen as we've worked our way through this book so far. They had been, for centuries, following after this way that seemed right to them, but it was radically out of step with the way of God's glory and righteousness. And so here now, God proclaims one last final time in this book, he proclaims the end to which their unfaithfulness and their sinfulness has brought them. And I say that he proclaims it one final time because chapter 13 really is the really is the pinnacle, it's the climax of Hosea's prophecies of judgment against Israel, but chapter 13 is not the last chapter in the book, thank the Lord. That's wonderful because the final word that God gives is not all about judgment, it's all about redemption in chapter 14, which we'll see together next week, and which is ultimately what the entire book of Hosea is all about. Yes, God is a righteous judge, and he is a merciful Savior and Redeemer. The inexplicable, unfathomable, unconditional, redeeming love of our great God is where this book takes us, where this book leaves us, and it is pointing us, of course, to Jesus Christ, who is that great Redeemer. And that's appropriate as we approach Christmas where we celebrate his birth as that eternal redeemer. But even before we get to the end of Hosea in chapter 14, even here, which we're going to see this morning, in chapter 13, where God is proclaiming that the pride of Israel has led to their impending fall, and that the way in which they've walked for centuries will finally end in destruction and in death. Even here, where his word is so severe against sin, the ultimate purposes of God's mercy and love will be proclaimed even in this chapter in a way that even we've seen woven all throughout the book as a whole so far in one verse, which we'll see at the end. Maybe it didn't seem like it when you read through this chapter together, but um, its message is really pretty simple. And even though it's simple, it's really very, very profound and ultimately, even though it seems really dark and heavy, ultimately the message of Hosea 13 is very beautiful. It breaks out in three main sections, and they all build on one another to proclaim a terrifying reality, but to leave us with a beautiful hope. The terrifying reality is not the ultimate message that God wants to proclaim here. In the first Part In the first section of chapter 13, verses 1 through 3, God proclaims that Israel's pride has led to their fall, which he says there in Proverbs 16 that it always will. Then in the second section, verses 4 through 8, God proclaims that he is good, but that while he's good, he is not safe. Some of you might recognize that reference from the Chronicles of Narnia. We'll get to that. Then in verses 9 through 16, God declares this terrifying reality that unrepentant sinners have absolutely nowhere to hide from him. But, again, one glimpse of hope in verse 14, 
the only place to hide is in him. Let's look at this chapter together today and and take in all of this that God has for us in his word. First, verses 1 through 3. Israel's pride has at long last, after centuries, led to their fall. When Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. He was exalted in Israel, but he incurred guilt through Baal and died. Ephraim was the tribe of the northern kingdom of Israel that was the most prominent. Ephraim was given prominence over his older brother Manasseh. Ephraim became the most prominent of the northern tribes and was often used as a designation for the nation as a whole because they were the most prosperous. Ephraim played an important role all throughout the history of Israel. Joshua was an Ephraimite. Samuel was an Ephraimite. King Jeroboam I was an Ephraimite. The tabernacle that was located in Shiloh for so many years before coming to Jerusalem was in Shiloh, which was in the territory of Ephraim. Compared to all the other northern tribes, Ephraim was more significant, it was more prominent, they became more prosperous by the kind and generous hand of God all throughout their history. He was exalted, Ephraim was, as verse 1 says. But in their pride, in their sin, they became proud. And in their pride, they turned away from the God who had blessed them and exalted them. And instead of blessing him in return, instead of honoring him, instead of trusting him, instead of giving him thanks, instead they entrusted themselves to Baal. Baal's a word that means master or owner or lord, and it was the word that the pagan Canaanites ascribed to their false god of fertility. It's a made-up god in their false worship system. They trusted an imaginary pagan god to provide more. The Israelites did. The Ephraimites did. They trusted this made-up god to provide more, more fertile livestock, more fertile crops, And so more money, more wealth, more prosperity, more fertile families. They trusted this false God more than they trusted the true God. And the simple reason why they did that is because they weren't content with what the true God had given to them. Well, that was the problem all the way back in the garden, right? With Adam and Eve, they wanted more. They wanted something else. Look at everything that God's given us. And Satan said, yeah, but you could have more. And so they went outside of God to try and get it. And before we roll our eyes too much at Ephraim for doing this and pretend to be so aghast that they would have the audacity to to worship a false God instead of fully trusting the true God to give them everything they need in this world, remember, this is exactly what is at the heart of every sinful human thought and attitude and word and deed in our lives. It's because we don't trust God. It's because we want more. It's because we think we can have more. Doing it our way, doing it the world's way, than simply trusting his way and him. John Piper says that no one sins because they're forced to sin. No one sins because they're made to sin. 
people sin. We all sin in all the ways that we sin because very simply, sin offers us a promise of happiness that seems to be greater than the happiness that God gives or that we will get by trusting and obeying Him. It's as simple as that. Pride, selfish ambition, ingratitude, lust, all those things are at the heart of all sin against God. That's how it was in Ephraim. That's how it was in Israel. In spite of all of God's goodness and faithfulness and blessings to them, everything that he had lavished upon them, in spite of it all, they turned away from him because they thought they could have more by making alliances with the pagan nations around them, by incorporating the worship of the pagan nation's false gods into their own religious lives. They thought they could have more. And, and we do the same kind of thing all the time. Make no mistake. Every time we allow the world's wisdom that comes not just apart from God's word or in addition to God's word, but often in rejection of God's word as a substitute for God's wisdom, every time we allow the world's wisdom and the ways of the world, which cut against the grain of the ways of God's holiness, every time we allow that to pollute the purity of our devotion to him, we're doing the same thing. And that's what Ephraim was doing, and that's what all of Israel were doing. Instead of remaining pure in their devotion to God, instead of trusting him with all their hearts, Proverbs 3, they were putting their confidence in other ways, other things. They thought, you know, we're going to keep worshiping God. We're still going to go and make sacrifices to him, but probably we can get even more if we also worship these other gods and do things the way that the Canaanites do things. Like participating in the Canaanite fertility cults, which also included all kinds of depraved you can imagine immoral rituals in the pagan worship services to their fertility gods. You're, you're worshiping a, a false fertility god that's made up out of sinful fleshly ideas, hoping that they're going to give you fertility in your land. What do you, what do you think the worship consists of? Depraved, debauched, immoral fertility rituals, prostitution, and every other thing that you can possibly imagine, which provided all kinds of temptation for the people of Israel and Ephraim to fall to. And so they did. Verse 2, more and more they did. As we've seen already in this book, sin begets more sin. Sin multiplies exponentially like a viral pandemic, like a, like a mold infestation, like leaven in a loaf of bread, right? That's one of God's favorite pictures of how sin suffuses everything around it and just grows and gets everywhere. And so the more idolatry that the people indulged in, the more depraved the people became in their minds and in their hearts and in their lives, putting more trust in things that human hands had made than in the God who made the human hands. It seems ludicrous, but this is what they did. And it's what we do, maybe not in the same way, but we do it. We trust created things more than the creator all the time. They were, verse 2 says, kissing cows. They were venerating livestock. The translation we were reading out of today, the ESV says that they do that while offering human sacrifices. Some 
Some translations disagree with that wording, but whether or not that's what this verse says, we know from other places in God's word that human sacrifices did go on in Israel and in Judah. The people weren't just so depraved as to kiss and venerate and worship cows and pay more homage to livestock than to God. There were times in their history where they even offered human beings to false gods as sacrifices, hoping to attain some blessing, something that would be worth more somehow, they thought, than the human life. And that, I, that sounds completely ludicrous. It sounds utterly crazy, superstitious, so primitive, right? Surely such things would never, ever happen in a modern, enlightened society like ours where one million babies every year are murdered because we've accepted the world's wisdom and followed after the world's way. And as a society, we've come now to define human rights to mean that people are free to kill unborn children for all kinds of reasons because they think that that's going to benefit them more than the child will. Simple as that. It's no less perverse. It's no less pagan. It's no less demonic. Neither is all the rampant immorality that pollutes the nations of this world, including ours. But the ways of the sinful world, which seem right to human beings, only lead to death. And the pride of human sinfulness is what goes before destruction. So verse 3, Therefore they shall be like the morning mist, or like the dew that goes away early, like chaff that swirls from the threshing floor, or like smoke from a window. Our smoke alarm tends to go off every time somebody makes bacon. Constantly, constantly going off every time we make bacon, and the smoke from the bacon triggers the smoke alarm. So what do you do? You throw open the windows. Why? Because the smoke goes away. That's the picture here, right? It might seem like doing things the world's way is going to get you more happiness, more fun, more pleasure, more stuff, more prosperity in the world than, than devoting yourself to God will get you and seeking after His kingdom and righteousness is the priority of your life. But doing things the world's way is worse than investing with Bernie Madoff. What happened? They were promised big returns and then all their money vanished. Whatever gains you realize doing it the world's way will vanish in the morning, will disappear out the window like smoke. And the reason for that is that not only is the world wired to work a certain way naturally, and so chafing against that way tends to unravel things eventually, that's true. But the reason it's true is because God is the one who wired the world to work the way that it works. He's the maker. He's the creator. He's the one who defines the way that it works, including how it works morally and ethically. And when you start to pull at the threads of his order, things start to come apart. And not only that, but God doesn't just sit back passively and let it all go according to the natural course of things that he's wired into it. He's not that divine clockmaker who made the clock and then wound it up and then let it go to do its thing with no intervention. God is intervening all the time. He is intimately involved in every aspect of the universe that he made. He is holy, he is righteous, and he is just. 
holy and righteous mean that everything that God is is good. Everything that he does is good. And just means, God being just means that there are things that are not good in this world. And when they are not good, God will deal with them every single time in his perfect time. Wherever there are things that are wrong, he will make them right, all and every one of them. And that's a good thing. You don't, you don't want to live in a world where God is unjust, where God is just a pushover, where God just says, well, I don't want to be mean, so I guess we'll just let it go. You don't want to serve a God who is impotent to make all of the wrongs in this universe right one day. A lot of people don't like to talk about God's justice. They feel like it's a bad thing for him to judge anyone. But when people say that, when they say, I don't like to talk about God being just or being a judge, it's not justice itself that they're disapproving of, see? Everybody wants justice, right? They just don't want God to be the judge. Everybody wants justice. They just want to define justice for themselves. They don't want someone else doing it for them. Especially if and when that definition of justice that comes to them from someone else goes against what they want, their own desires. What they want to call right and wrong according to their own wisdom and, and, and fleshly desires. Now that's why the U.S. Senate on November 29th, passed the Respect for Marriage Act. They want justice. They want equality. And they do not want God telling them what it is. They do not want God being the one to define what marriage is. They do not want to be bound by what God says is right and wrong, right? It's not that they don't want justice. It's not that they don't want equality. They just want those things on their terms and not on His. This is what sinful people always, always do. And it will not stand. It will not last because the eternal God is, no matter what anybody says, is the judge of the whole world. And whenever anyone tries to replace him in that role and redefine right and wrong and true and false and good and evil and just and unjust, unjust, Whenever anybody does that, it's only a matter of time before he steps in and sets things right. And that's not a bad thing, it's a good thing. It's a hard thing, but it's a good thing. Because in the world where human beings try to replace God and impose their own definitions of justice and morality, they are every time paving the way that leads to destruction. So there, there is no world where there is no justice. There are no people who don't want justice. They just want it their way, and they don't want God being the judge over them. But that's who he is. God is the creator and therefore the rightful ruler of this universe, and he will not be subjugated to anyone, and he will not be trifled with. Just like Aslan in Narnia, right? When the children first heard about him from Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, and they heard about what a powerful, fierce lion Aslan was, 
and how he was the rightful ruler of Narnia and how they would meet him. And before long, he would reinstate his rule. Little Lucy asked, but is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Mrs. Beaver said, if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. So Lucy said, so he's not safe? And Mr. Beaver said, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Now that's the message of verses 4 through 8 here of Hosea 13. God is good, but do not think for a second that he's safe, that he's tame, that he's a pushover, that he doesn't care about righteousness, that he's happy to just let unrighteousness and injustice fester in this world. He is not a cowardly lion. He is not to be trifled with. He will right every wrong and enforce true justice in this world, and that is good. So verse 4, he's the only God. He's the only rightful ruler and just judge of the world. There is no God or Savior besides him. And verse 5, he's good. He fed Israel in the wilderness, even though it was a place of drought. He satisfied them when they couldn't possibly have found food anywhere out there apart from him. They would have starved to death, but he filled them up. But, verse 6, they accused him of being unjust. When they received good things from him, they didn't praise him, they didn't thank him, they didn't honor him, they became proud and forgot him, they demanded more. They became all about self, focused on them, not focused on him, worshiping the gifts instead of the giver, and becoming discontent and dissatisfied and lusting for more and turning anywhere and everywhere but to him to get more and what they wanted. That's what led to the worship of false gods. It's what led to them allying themselves with godless pagan people. It's what led to them adopting worldly wisdom and exchanging truth for lies and redefining right and wrong according to their own desires and reorienting justice away from God's truth and towards the way that seems right unto man but leads to death. So God says, verse 7, I will become like a lion to them. Good in all his ways, but not tame, not safe for sinners who refuse to honor him. Not a pushover, not blind to the injustice and immorality and the, the destructiveness that it wreaks in this world. It's the false gods that were blind, right? They had eyes that people carved, but they couldn't see. They had ears, but they couldn't hear. They had mouths, but they couldn't speak. Not the true God, though. He sees everything. He hears everything. He knows everything. Nothing escapes his notice. And for people who refuse him, that's bad news. He's like a leopard lurking along the way, it says. As they happily skip along the path of their own desires and their own way that seems right to them, and they think that they're safe and they've got a maid in the shade, nothing can touch them in their worldly prosperity. He's waiting in the shadows, like a leopard, to pour out justice. 
He will be to them like a bear robbed of her cubs, verse 8 says. That's a vivid picture, isn't it? Ferocious. Exactly. You wouldn't dare, right, if you were hiking in the Sierras and you saw cute little bear cubs and you wandered over and found a den full of cute little bear cubs, you wouldn't dare take those cubs in your arms and try to hike them out of the woods unless you were just an absolute idiot. Especially if the mama bear was nearby and was watching you. You wouldn't do it. You'd be the worst kind of fool because she'd come after you and tear you to pieces and make lunch of you for her and her cubs. So God is not pictured here as passive at all. But he also isn't pictured here as a mean, cruel, capricious, rabid, sort of bloodthirsty animal. He's, he's good, but do not mess with him because he cares. Because he cares. Like a, like a bear cares for her cubs, he cares for his creation. He cares about what's right and good and true, and he will fight for it, and you do not want to fight with him. God, who is almighty and holy and all-knowing and, and everywhere, omnipresent, he has, th these are the words of Derek Kidner, God has a fiery concern for what is precious to him. Holiness is precious to him. Righteousness is precious to him. Truthfulness is precious to God. Moral purity is precious to God. Image-bearing life is precious to God. And all of those in this world who try to redefine holiness and justice their way are trying to rob God of something that is precious to Him. All of those who call evil good and good evil and who twist and pervert and reject the truth of God's Word and lead people astray after destructive lies, all of those who clamor after immorality, try to make it a fundamental right and would destroy lives and families and human bodies and societies because of it. All of those who would destroy the image of God, especially in its infant form in the womb and also anywhere else and everywhere else that murder is committed, are putting their hands on things that are precious to God. And he is like the mother of all grizzlies, and he's watching. And he will make every wrong right. He will vindicate all injustice and all wrongdoing. He will purge all evil. And it is a fearful thing, Hebrews 10 warns in verse 31, to fall into the hands of the living God. You don't want to mess with him. In verses 9 through 16, he says now to Israel in no uncertain terms that they've messed with him. That they've tried to take away his cubs. That they've mishandled things that are precious to him. And so he's coming to enact justice for their wickedness. And there is nowhere that they can run and that there is nowhere for them to hide. Verse 9, he's coming. Verse 10, no king in this world can help them when he does come. I mean, for years they entrusted themselves to human kings and trusted the kings more than they trusted God. 
right? Starting with when they demanded a human king in the first place after the days of Samuel, and look where that got them. God says, well, I'll show you how that's going to go. Let's give you what you want, and you'll see how it goes. And it didn't go well. Here they are. I gave you a king in my anger, God says to them in verse 11. Again, because they demanded that, because they thought they would be better off with a human government like the Canaanites had than with God as their king. And then when it wasn't going so well with them with their own human kings, they entrusted themselves in political alliances to pagan kings, like the Assyrians, like the Egyptians. That also didn't go well, and it was about to go very, very badly when the Assyrians came knocking on their door. God says, I gave you a king, and now I'm going to take your kings away because they've continued to store up sin against me. And especially their, their wicked kings did that. So the message for Israel is, when God comes to enact justice, there won't be anyone who can possibly stop him. There won't be anyone who can possibly help them. And so, verse 15, like a scalding east wind out of the desert, God's judgment will come. A hot, dry wind drying up Israel's fountains drying up the springs, they will become parched, stripping their forests bare. Those are all images, of course, of God tearing down all of their sources of safety and security, all the things they've clung to and depended on and taken for granted in this world more than they have trusted and depended upon their God. And the chapter ends with these absolutely horrifying words in verse 16 that make you... when. When you read them, you just close your eyes and cringe, don't you? It's, it's brutal. Samaria shall bear her guilt because she has rebelled against her God. So they shall fall by the sword. Their little ones shall be dashed in pieces and their pregnant women ripped open. I mean, you don't even want to say those words out loud. These are God's words. Pride paves the way of destruction and comes before the fall. There is a way that seems right unto man, but at the end of that road is death and destruction in, in actual, real, horrifying terms. And what he describes there is nothing compared to what unrepentant sinners will, will realize for eternity if they do not come to him. God, who is holy and righteous is good, but he is not safe, and it is a fearful thing for sinners to fall into the hands of the living God, and there are no innocent ones. Not in the purview of verse 16. I mean, again, I know it's a brutally hard verse to digest, but none of them are undeserving of what God says he's going to do. There are none righteous, no, not one, not in this whole world. And the wages of sin is death. God is just in his essence and in his unchangeable nature. And it is impossible for him to do anything unjust to anyone. And so whatever our reaction to verse 16 is there, don't be tempted to think it's unjust. And in the end, what that means is that God would be holy and righteous and good. In all of his justice, he would be good 
to enact upon every single human being in Adam, every single one of us, you and me included, the same justice that he declares there in verse 16. Because none of us have met the standard, which is, you must be holy as I am holy. That's the standard. Perfection is the standard. Without spot or blemish is the standard. And the bar is infinitely high, for that is the quality of his own holiness. We all fall short. And the measure of how far short, it's not relative to one another. It's relative to him. The standard is not how, how righteous am I relative to Mussolini or Hitler or Pol Pot or even the average human being in Adam. The standard is only how holy am I compared to God? Is he unjust to even demand such a standard? To insist that we, we have to be as pure as he is? To insist that zero unrighteousness may pollute his perfect creation? He's not unjust. Here's why. Because if he tolerated one iota of unholiness, then he himself would not be holy. He would not be just. He would not be God. He would not be what he is. He would just be imperfect and impure to say this little speck can remain. He would be like us. So see, this is why the wages of sin, all sin, any sin, is death. We keep, here's an illustration. We keep hearing on the news about fentanyl overdoses that lead to death. And the reason why so many people are dying from fentanyl overdoses is because in the form that it appears on the street, that drug can be 10,000 times more potent than morphine. And so the smallest amount can lead to death. Tell you what, sin is worse, infinitely worse. Any amount, any amount at all leads to death, eternal everlasting death under the justice of God's infinite holiness for all of eternity. Because Habakkuk 1 verse 13, you who are of purer eyes than to see any evil, you cannot look upon any wrong. He must always and will always deal with all of it. Get it? Perfect purity is only pure if it's perfect without dilution, without pollution of any kind. Any sin of any amount will not and cannot be tolerated. That's why the wages of all and any sin is death. Destruction of every trace. Eternal purging of every hint of impurity. That's why, that's why death is a reality in this cursed world. That's why eternal condemnation is the punishment that fits the crime. Because all sin is eternally distant from God's perfect holiness. And that's why every man and woman and child was staring down the barrel of that kind of justice in Hosea 13. And it is just and it is good. If God in his holiness and justice just wiped every last spot of impurity from his creation, including every single last one of us, and consigned us all to perdition forever, 
he would be good, he would be good and he would be just because he is holy and he will not abide any spot of impurity and you ready for the good news and also at the same time he who is holy 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 and perfectly infinitely righteous and just is also mercy is also grace is also love so once again, we've seen it so many times already in this book, when the clouds of divine holy justice against sin are at their darkest and most foreboding in the book of Hosea, that is precisely when God mercifully lets a ray of light shine through and hit us right on our eye. That's exactly right when when his sovereign voice as the judge of the whole earth is thundering against unrighteousness and sin, that's when his fatherly voice of mercy becomes the sweetest and the most resonant. It's when the bad news can't possibly get any worse that the good news rings most loudly and clearly. So verse 14 of Hosea chapter 13. It's interesting. Some of you are going to have different translations. Again, like we encountered last week, right? Remember with chapter 11 and verse 12, we've got to be careful how to understand the verse because different English translations render it differently. In fact, Jake read from this book, which is in the racks in front of all your chairs, this Bible called the English Standard Version, and it's different than this Bible, which is also the English Standard Version. This one I got at my seminary graduation a lot of years ago. I can't remember how many years ago that was now. When Justin was born, 21 years ago. More than 21 years ago. They've changed it. They've changed it. They've updated it. They've made it better in this verse. I'll tell you why. And, and this applies also to several other translations also. Here in verse 14 of Hosea 13, in the midst of all this doom and gloom and judgment that God is pronouncing, listen to how the New American Standard reads verse 14. Reads it as a rhetorical question. Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? And the implication is no, I won't. There's another translation that the NET translation, it makes it explicit. It literally says, no, those words aren't found in the Hebrew, but it, it puts them in there for what they think is clarity. No, I shall not, God is saying in verse 14, according to that translation. In his justice against sin, God is saying to Israel, I'm not going to redeem anyone. And he would be good and just if he didn't. But this English Standard Version and other English Translations like the NIV and the King James and the New King James understand it a very different way and, in fact, the opposite way. In those translations, God is not asking a rhetorical question and then saying definitely not in reply. Shall I give them mercy? Absolutely not. That's not how they read it. In those translations, including what Jake read, he's making a statement and saying to the ones who he has just pronounced judgment against, Yet I will ransom them from the power of Sheol. Even though I'm really angry, even though I'm not tame, even though they deserve everything that's coming to them, I will redeem them from death. 
the reason to prefer that understanding, that translation. First of all, the Hebrew grammar prefers it. It's really only the immediate context here of, of judgment that has caused some translators to think that they have to read this verse as, a, as another announcement of judgment. But if you had this verse all on its own, apart from the rest of chapter 13, the most natural way to read it is as a statement of God's intention to redeem. And not some rhetorical question. There's no question marks in Hebrew. Not some rhetorical question that says that God is not going to redeem. And the other reason to read it as a statement of redemptive intent and purpose by God is because in the New Testament, Paul quotes this verse that way. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I think that's why they changed it in the ESV between the way it reads in mine and the way it reads in the ones in your pews. As they say, right, if it's good enough for the Apostle Paul. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, God is going to redeem people from death. God is going to put death to death. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? He's referring right here to this verse. God will not let death prevail. And so here again, in the middle of God's holy proclamation of righteous judgment, which comes in such stark and disturbing terms, here again he drops in this massively merciful and gracious announcement of gospel hope. He did this back in chapter 11, remember? He went... He went from saying this in verse 7, My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, I will not listen or raise myself to help them at all. Then he turns on his heel in the very next verse and say, Oh, but how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zebuim, like those towns that were near Sodom and Gomorrah, remember? My heart recoils within me and my compassion grows warm and tender. Same thing here again, see? God is revealing his whole unchangeable heart, both his holy justice and his steadfast love and mercy. He's saying both. Yes, I will deal with sin and judge it all justly. I will, I will pour out the just sentence against the sin. But most importantly, there's coming a day where I will pour out all of my justice against death itself. Against death itself. And that he will redeem sinful people from death. I shall redeem them from death. That's how to read it. Oh, death, where are your plagues? Oh, Sheol, where is your sting? That's how Paul understood it. That's how you should. Because in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is proclaiming in no uncertain terms that because Jesus died and because Jesus defeated death, because he was raised bodily from the grave, he defeated death and took away its sting. And so in him, anybody who trusts him for salvation will never die. Because on that cross where Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied fully. Because the death of Jesus, as the Son of God incarnate, as the perfectly spotless Lamb of God who knew no sin, who was and is and always will be perfectly holy as God is holy because He's God, His death, His sacrifice, is the only sacrifice 
that is worth enough, infinitely enough, to pay the full price of all of our sin, which falls infinitely short of God's glory and would require, if we had to pay it, an eternity. An eternity of us making payments. Jesus only had to make one payment. Because his righteousness, his holiness is the holiness of the God who he is. And so where God says here in verse 14 that compassion is hidden from my eyes at the end of that verse, he doesn't mean compassion for Israel is hidden from his eyes. He doesn't mean that compassion towards sinful people is hidden from his eyes. They've become his enemies. We've become his enemies in our sin. But his compassion for human sinners who are at enmity with him is not hidden from his eyes. What it means here is that his compassion for his last enemy, who is our greatest enemy, which is death itself, is hidden from his eyes. I won't have compassion on death. I will have compassion on you. But I will, I will vanquish death entirely, is what he's saying here. And the last enemy to be destroyed, Paul declares there in 1 Corinthians 15, 26, in reference to this verse here in Hosea 13, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. There will one day be no more death for all who are in Christ Jesus. That is God's ultimate purpose in all of the fullness of both his unchanging justice and his steadfast love and mercy not just to destroy sinners in his holy wrath, but ultimately to destroy death itself and create everlasting life. And he did it by letting himself be destroyed on the cross and then defeating death and being raised. Isn't that amazing? And so once again we see all of it points to Christ. All of it in Hosea points to Christ, to Jesus who is God himself come in human flesh all the fullness of God in bodily form. And that's why he came. That's why he was a baby born in a manger. So that he who is perfect and holy might shed blood and pay for the sins of men and make that only sacrifice possible that's worth eternally enough to satisfy the fullness of God's justice for our sins. We'll close with this. Romans 3, verses 23 through 26. One of my favorite, favorite passages in all of God's word. For all have sinned, none escape it. All have sinned and fall short, eternally, infinitely short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace. Not by your good works, not by anything you can do to try to climb that eternally tall ladder. By His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, to be received by faith, again, doing what we could never, ever do, taking our sins upon himself, giving his own righteousness to us in order to show his righteousness, Paul explains, because in God's divine forbearance, he has passed over our former sins and shown his righteousness at the present time so that he might be two things, just in pouring out wrath against sin and the justifier, the one who says, now you are holy as I am holy.
because of what Jesus is and what Jesus did. You see, this is the gospel that God is proclaiming already here in Hosea 13. He is the God who both judges and redeems. And the gospel that he accomplished in the birth and death and resurrection of his son is so that he might be who he is in both ways, both the just one who deals fully with our sin and the justifier of sinners who through faith are covered with the righteousness of Christ just like he was covered with our sin on the cross. So all of the wrath of God, all of the judgment of God that should have poured out against us for all of eternity fell on him, on that cross. And all of his perfect righteousness and thereby all the approval and affection and love of God fell on us. This is the only good news. And it only comes through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And this is what gives us the sure hope of eternal life with God. Today, look to him for this hope. Every day, look to him for this hope. Until the very last day and with your dying breath, look to him for that hope. And sing what we're going to sing here. Hold thou thy cross before my closing eyes. Shine through the gloom and point me to the skies. Heaven's morning breaks and earth's vain shadows flee. In life, in death, O Lord, abide with me. Amen? Let's pray together today and then we'll sing. Our God and our Father, we thank you so much again for your word, which is honest and true and shows us in terms that are really hard for us to lay hold of us. It shows us, Father, how serious our sin is. And how serious your holiness and justice are. And thereby, Father, it shows us just how radical your love is. How precious it is. How unmatched it is. And so, Father, would you give us grateful hearts for all that you have done for us in Jesus Christ. And would you help us, because of all that you have done for us, to abide in him. And him in us, that we might know this life and grow in this life and know him for everlasting life. For in Jesus' name we pray, amen.